All right, good morning, everybody. If you'll turn to Second Chronicles chapters 27 and 28, that's where we'll be. Uh, tonight we have our uh, monthly prayer meeting at 7 o'clock. Uh, Jerry Vera will be teaching on prayer during the New Believers uh, Bible study at 6. So it kind of goes hand in hand. So if you'll join us uh, for his class. And you, where are you guys meeting? Are you meeting in here or back classroom? Back classroom on the left-hand side. It's a big classroom back there. Um, that's at 6. And then just join us for prayer at 7 if you'd like to do that too. Or just come for the prayer at 7 if you if that's what you want to do. So anyway, that's what's going on this week. Um, also, um, we're going to have a, we're praying about having a Good Friday or a Good Thursday service. I'm having a hard time with the doctrinally. Um, because Jesus had to have died on, on Thursday night. It, there was a double uh, Sabbath there. And so I, do you really want to have, you know, advertise a, a, a Good Thursday service and have the controversy? And have to explain to everybody why you're doing a good Thursday because there were two Sabbaths in a row, the Passover and then the regular Saturday Sabbath, and so he died Thursday night. Or do you just skip it and, and just do it anyway and see what happens? Or do you do it on Good Friday? And so pray for me. It's quite a controversy in my mind right now. Very difficult. Um, but we want to do something that just seems uh, appropriate. And um, when I grew up in my church, uh, before I was saved, um, I wasn't saved until I was 19 years old. Uh, the denomination that I grew up in had a Monday Thursday and also had a Good Friday. And uh, I think it was the Monday Thursday or the Good Friday. I don't know which service it was. It was the most important service for me as I grew up. Um, and one of the things they would do, and what I would like to do here also uh, in this service, is a scripture would be read, and one of the lights would turn off, another scripture would be read, another light would be turned off until finally... Uh, the entire room is dark, and you read about the crucifixion and Jesus dying on the cross, and he breathed his last, and everybody leaves in silence. And there's just that moment just to, to pause and to think as we celebrate Easter on Sunday to have a few days of, you know, remembering the cross. And so uh, that's what I want to do, and, I, and so we're, we're praying about how to, how to work that out. So um, that was probably way more information that you needed, but um, hey. Why not, right? Let's pray about it, and, and I think we need to do it. So, all right, Second Chronicles 27. Jotham, King Jotham, he's the, he's the new king here. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Not a real long time, but not too bad. Better than the two months or the two years that some of these guys uh, were in, in power. His mother's name was Jerusha the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. And that's a good thing. Remember last week when he went in there and got leprosy, and uh, it's not, you don't want to do that. So he didn't do that part, but he did everything else right. You know, he still walked with the Lord. Um, but still the people acted corruptly. And we kind of talked about that too with this with his dad, the king, and how he did everything that was right in the sight of the Lord, and he led the people, and at least, at least made it possible for them to walk with the Lord. They weren't constantly being bombarded with, uh, with secular or with uh, other religions and other other gods, other false gods. He he made the nation of Israel truly a place where you could worship the true and living God and not be distracted by these things. And we weren't sure where the people stood because it really didn't tell us last week where they were. Um, whether they were upset about the fact that they couldn't do what they've always done under evil kings, 
um, go up to the high places and worship and, and, and worship these other gods the way they wanted to, or whether they were on board. Um, we don't know. But this king, we do know, and they're not on board. He can do all he wants. He can get things right. He can make things straight. But uh, they're, they're not acting. They're, they're, they're still acting corruptly. They're not walking with the Lord. And that's a choice. That's a choice. That's all you can do is offer and make available. Um, that's all Jesus ever did when he taught. He would go out and he would teach. And whoever came, came. Whoever didn't, didn't. He didn't go to people's houses and ask them why they weren't, you know, why weren't you on the hill, you know, or uh, why didn't you come to the mountain? It was a really good sermon. It's, it's amazing. They didn't do that. Um, don't come. It, it was up to them whether they wanted to, to, to learn from him and to grow closer to God. So the king has set it up here for the nation of Israel to do what they were called to do by God. They are a nation that is a theocracy. They're supposed to be governed by God, and yet the people still act corruptly. Verse 3. And I want you to note how many times he says he built, okay, this king. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. He built extensively on the wall of Ophel. He, moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah and in the forests. He built for fortresses and towers. He also fought with the king of the Ammonites and defeated them. And the people of Ammon gave him in, the, in that year 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, 10,000 barley, the people of Ammon paid the, this to him uh, in the second and third years also. So uh, Jotham became mighty because he prepared his way before the Lord his God, which is, a, is an underlining or an underlying moment there. Jotham became mighty because he prepared his way before the Lord. He made sure that he was on God's page. He wasn't on his own page and asking God to join him, which is is. is seems very obvious that that's what you need to do, but it's very easy to lose sight of that in, in a person's life. Um, taking the time to pray before you go to the right or till you go to the left. Oftentimes, as you grow older than the Lord, you, you just take that for granted and you go to the left and you ask God to make sure he's coming with you. Um, that's not what Jotham did. He became mighty because he prepared his way before the Lord. He, he asked the Lord what he wanted him to do. Which is the direction it should take our nation? Which is the the right way or the wrong way to go. And God blessed him because he was obedient to God's uh, direction. He also built. He was a builder. He didn't just sit around. He didn't just let things happen or hope, you know. Um, it, it's important to pray for God to provide for your family. It's important to pray for God to bless your marriage and to bless your kids. But none of that will happen with you sitting on the couch, there's, a, there's an action that we need to do. Faith without works is dead. Praying about it is fine, but you need to do that. I need to love my wife. That's an action. That's something you do. I need to love my husband. That's something I do. I purpose in my heart to make sure that I'm loving him today or I'm loving her today. I'm training up my kids in the way that they should go, that when they're old, they won't depart from it. There's an action there. I didn't just pray over them while they're sleeping. I take the time to teach them Scripture, to show them Scripture in my life and what it looks like to be obedient to God. Those are things that we have to do. This king planned his way before the Lord, but he built. He was out there doing. He was making sure his people knew that he cared for them, loved them, and... Uh, was building all the way around them, the, the gates and the cities and the protection. It was for their benefit. He didn't need that stuff. As a king, you're pretty protected. You've got your own garrison of men around you. You've, you're in the castle. You're in the big house, you know. 
uh, with all the walls and all the archers and everything. This is for other people. And then he went out and did battle against these enemies of God, enemies of his nation, um, and had victory there because they needed that protection. Um, they encroach. We're going to find that out with the next king. As soon as they smelled weakness, there was encroachment. There was, there was, uh, uh, they wanted to fight. They wanted to do battle with the nation of Israel. Um, this guy went out and fought for the people. A couple cross-references here. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through uh, 25, it says this about uh, building on the rock. Because that's what you want to do. You want to build. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not, fa- it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Foundation in our lives need to be Jesus Christ, but then we build on that. We don't just stand on a, a flat rock our whole lives. There's something to build upon now. We, we build our lives upon that. But there's building that takes place. There's action on our part. And there's action on this king's part. And we want to be a part of that. We want to ju- just wait for God to miraculously develop a structure in front of us. There's things I need to do and be a part of and make decisions and, and act upon those things. In Jude chapter 20, verse, or Jude chapter 1, 20 and 21, there's only one chapter in Jude. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You want to build yourself up. I, I can't coast when I'm walking with the Lord. Coasting you know what happens. You lose momentum. You, you, you lose your balance. If you're on a bike, that's how I always think of it. Uh, um, when I was a kid, we used to ghost ride our bikes. I don't know if you ever did that. You go as fast as you can, then you hop off of them, and then you just let them see how far they go. You know, kind of thing. Well, eventually, they run out of steam, and they smash and crash. We thought that was the funniest thing. We just thought that was great, and we just ghost ride our bikes all over the place. When you're on the bike, though, <laughs> and that happens, that's not so fun. You got to pedal. You got to keep your momentum going. There's, there's steering involved. There's, there's things you do with our walk with Jesus Christ that are important. We've got to build on our lives. Building yourselves up. Are you building yourself up? I guess is the question. Am I studying God's word? Do I know it more today than I did yesterday? Uh, am I praying more than I ever have? Is my walk with Jesus closer, more joyful than it's ever been? Or have I been coasting, you know? And it's time to start pedaling again. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. They're supposed to pursue these things. Righteousness isn't something that just happens. We pursue them. I make decisions in my life to not do that or to add this to my life that's godly, to take out the things that aren't. Um, he calls us to that. Second Timothy 4, 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand, Paul says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who loved his appearing. Paul was a fighter. 
This king is a fighter. I'm not going to just let the enemies come in. I'm not just going to pray them away. I'll pray that God lead us and guide us and give us strength, but I'm also going to swing my sword. I'm going to make sure that they're taken care of, that I'm protecting my sheep, my people. And this king would do that. And we're called to that as Christians. I think we get into that attitude. Well, I'm just going to keep praying that God just does this. He will. Um, but not without our action, not without us obeying him. You know, there are some things out of our control. Don't get me wrong. There are some things I can't be a part of. And, and that's, I pray about those things as well. But there's very much a ton of things that I can do something about that I'm called to. I can pray about those things for direction. Do I do this or do I do that? But I do one of them, doing being the key. And this king was an active, active king. It was not about himself. It was about others. Um, And it's neat to see. Uh, Chapter 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Remember, Israel's got all the bad kings, and Judah's kind of got some good kings now and then. Well, this guy followed the example of the northern tribes, Israel. The southern tribes are called Judah. And although Judah was supposed to be different and supposed to be a little more holy, a little closer to God, not under this guy's leadership. He felt that pressure from the people, and he probably agreed with them, just waiting for dad to kick and so that he could take over and do what he wanted to do. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. I mean, this guy went pagan, uh, <laughs> mucho pagan. He went all the way. Um, all those things are important. I think the most uh, difficult one is the burning of the children in the fire. They were, ironically, I mean, not ironically, um, sorry, obviously, when you're not worshiping spiritually, when you're not worshiping the true and living God, which is all that our spirits are designed to worship, you're worshiping in the flesh. So if you're not worshiping in spirit and truth, you are worshiping the flesh or in the flesh. There's, there's, no, there's no third choice. So when you reject the true and living God and you're no longer worshiping in spirit and truth, the true and living, all you have left to do is to worship the flesh. And those are the appetites of the flesh. You'll worship sex, you'll worship food, you'll worship uh, violence, you'll worship all the things that the flesh just loves and gratifies itself with, you know, these things. Well, one of the things is uh, sexuality. It's, it's, it was a big one. It's a big appetite. There's been some scientific studies that show you give a rat the opportunity to push a button uh, to gratify himself or a push a button for a food pellet, and they will starve to death hitting the button to gratify themselves. They just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Okay, and that's just the nature of the beast. That's just the nature of the animal, you know. Um, So when you remove God from someone's life, when God uh, is ejected out of someone's heart or out of their life, they are obsessed with and overcome by these appetites of the flesh. And that's what has happened to the nation of Israel. Since they've rejected God, they're off worshiping. And, And part of that is that fertility. When you worship that gratifying of yourself, of your flesh, you oftentimes then have these superfluous children in their minds. 
because you're worshiping that area of their lives, all of a sudden you have an overabundance of this population, just explosion taking place, because that's all anybody's thinking about. They would burn these kids as a sacrifice to the God that called them to worship in that way. Very strange, very demonic, very bizarre. When they would do this. And so they had this place, that's where it happened, and they would heat up their metal idols till they were red hot and throw the babies on these arms of these red hot idols until they burned to death in honor of the God that called them to do, I'm trying to be careful here because there's some kids in the crowd, but to do that, which um, was meant for beautiful relationship between one man and one woman, um, and by God's design, but it's been perverted, it's been perverted um, in such a way that it's worshipped itself. The act itself is worshipped in, in honor of these other gods. So they would burn these, they would burn these kids. And uh, so that's where the nation of Israel, uh, what, a, what a fall, right? When a nation, uh, there's always a remnant. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But when a nation departs from serving the Lord and begins to worship satisfying the flesh, whether that's food or sex or whatever it may be. Um, the next step is obvious. It isn't obvious to the world that's gone that direction, but it's obvious to those or the remnant that's left behind or that's fighting for morality, that's fighting for truth, that's fighting to do what God would call us to do and is living that way. Um, you think about Noah and you think about Lot and how they were vexed by the world around them. Um, and how God spared them and protected them and watched out for them, but the whole world around them was falling apart into this, what we're reading here. And uh, it was very difficult for those two men. Lots of strange story, but it, said, it says in Hebrews that it vexed him. Um, and uh, it was difficult. And so you're not alone. I say that because in this room is, is the remnant, not just us, but very much so. We're the remnant in a nation that has slowly and is slowly but surely turning away from the true and living God and beginning to worship all these other things that we're reading about right in front of our eyes, and the warning is clear for anybody that wants to know it and read it. But the next step is, verse 5, Therefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. Now Syria is a worse enemy and does worse things in the nation of Israel. And yet God uses this tool in his hand to punish the nation of Israel because they know better. The Israelites are supposed to know better. They had tasted and seen that the Lord was good and they have decided to walk away from that and to worship these other gods. So God sends Syria and Syria defeats them. They defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. Then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who defeated him with a great slaughter. For Pekah, the son of Ramalia, killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed uh, Messiah, the king's son, Ezrakam, the officer over the house of Elkanah, who was second to the king and the children of Israel, carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons and daughters. And they also took away much spoil from them and brought them 
brought, and brought the spoil of, uh, to Samaria. So the, even the, the northern tribes, Israel, took advantage of this weakness of this, uh, and, the, and they're weak because they're not worshiping the true and living God, took advantage of this weakness and exploited it for their own benefit and, t- and took these people back to Israel. Now they're going to get most of them back, but for now, that, that's the example. That's the lesson. That's the, the warning. We can talk about it in a national level. Um, it wouldn't surprise us in the least if we were taken over or, or already have been. Um, it wouldn't surprise us in the least, I'm sure. Um, but even on a personal level, because that is really the makeup of a nation is, is you and I individually. Um, I can let these things come into my life. If I don't want to talk about it as a nation, I can talk about it as just me no longer doing the things like the former king was doing, worshiping the true and living God, building, 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 fighting, fighting, fighting. I can have a change of heart and decide not to do those things anymore and to let myself coast and to fall into decay spiritually, find myself at a, a place I never thought I'd find myself and given over to that appetites of the flesh until finally I begin to lose those around me. Satan begins to take captive my kids, take captive my wife, take captive those that I love the most, God, Satan can start to take captive because I'm not leading like I'm supposed to be leading. And you look around, you're, where did they go? What happened? I'm sure he justified it in his own mind. Hey, this is what I wanted to do. It's not my problem that you're all falling away from the Lord, but it is. It is his responsibility. It's my responsibility to lead my family spiritually. It's my responsibility to show them the way. To be the most spiritual person in the home. That's my responsibility. And when I decline, they may or may not decline with me. But if they do, they're only going to my level. The farther down that I go, the farther down they go. My kids are going to look at me as an example and say, well, dad, you do that. You talk that way. You act that way. I'm responsible. So is this king. So on a personal level, if we want our nation to ever get back to where it needs to be, that's up to me and my home. And that's up to you and your home and so on. Usually in verse 9, you have that, that but, you know. And we've had that a couple times where the nation of Israel is doing great, but. And then it, this is the other way. This is one of these good times, right? But a prophet of the Lord, it's nice to see God step in. But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded. And he went out before the army. This is the Israeli army that had just taken the captives of Judah, right? Okay, so this Oded comes out and says, what are you guys doing, basically? Look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, He has delivered them into your hand, but you have killed them in in a rage that reaches up to heaven. In other words, you're not going to not be held responsible just because God wanted to do this and released his hand and from pushing you away to let you come down and do this. You're still responsible for your actions. It's like two drunk guys fighting outside in the parking lot. They both probably have it coming. But both of them are responsible. Both of them are going to be in trouble. Nobody's doing the right thing here. Nobody's on God's side. Israel's not on God's side. Judah is not on God's side. They're both apostate. They both walked away from him. And so this this prophet comes in and says, look, 
you guys didn't do this because you were being holy and righteous and obeying God. You did this because you were just enraged. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves. But are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Now hear me, therefore, and return the captives whom you have taken captive from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. You better turn them back over. This was just a moment. This was just something God wanted to do to bring them back to himself, to let them know that worshiping these little gods, these false gods, gets you no protection, gets you, these little gods can't do anything for you except take. So you better bring these people back. And so verse 12, the remnant, and some of the heads of the children of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Johanan, Berkiah, I think, the son of uh, Mishlemoth, uh, Jehezekiah, uh, the son of Shalem, and Amasa, the son of Haldai, stood up against those who came from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives here, for we already have offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders and all the assembly. Then the men who were designated by name rose up and took the captives. And from the spoil, they clothed all those who were naked among them, dressed them and gave them sandals, gave them food and drink and anointed them. And they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. Just a small group. Small group of men stood up. And said, this is it. We're done. We're not doing this anymore. What you've done is offensive to God already, but we're not going to add to the sin by making these people our slaves. It stops here. No farther. Leave them here. Go your way, and I'm going to get these people back to where they belong. There was a, a return. There was a remnant here. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. God notices these things. He watches these things. The nation is never completely gone. We may not hear about them when we're reading about these stories, but there's always a remnant of people who are sickened by what's going on around them and want to worship the Lord and do what they can do. And maybe it's not big enough to be documented, but they're out there doing it, you know? And just some of these heads, some of these leaders stood up and said, that's it. And, it, and they left them. These men of war left the people there. These guys are hardened warriors. They wouldn't have to do that, I wouldn't think. But they felt compelled to do so. In Psalm 68, verses 4 through 6, Sing to the Lord. Sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. I read that because that's a psalmist describing who God is. He's someone who helps the fatherless. He's a defender of the widow, and he takes those that are solitary or alone and puts them into families that they have none, you know? I like that. Now, if my God does that, guess what he wants me to do? He wants me to be just like that. He wants me to imitate him. He takes a leadership role, not in word only, but in deed. And he does the things 
that he wants me to do. Jesus came and was an example to us of what we're supposed to do here on earth, what it looks like to walk with the Father. And so in Psalm 82, 2 through 4, we hear him giving us those exact instructions. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of wickedness. We're called to that. I do it, God says. I want you to do it. Isaiah 1, 16 through 18. Now, I want to read 18 to you because we quote this one all the time, but we don't know the first verse before it. Here's the one we quote. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I love that verse. It describes my sin being washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and what he's going to do for me. He can take away all my guilt and shame. Now let's read the 16 and 17. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead, of the wi- plead for the widow. And then I read that, in that, that last verse. Now my sins are white as, has been made white as snow by the blood of Jesus Christ. But he calls us to do those things. And you are. I'm not, it's not a rebuke. It's, a, it's an encouragement. It's an exhortation to continue to not grow weary in doing well. You've, you've heard this story, and I've probably heard, you know, maybe we've said it here before. There's a little boy taking all the starfish that had washed up on the beach, and he's tossing them back into the ocean, you know. And the man walked behind him and says, look at that. Look at the lime. There's millions of them. You can't possibly get them all back in the water. He says, no, I can't get them all, but I can get the ones I'm throwing back in. Instead of looking at the problem and the size of children without parents or widows stuck without any support, do you know any personally that you can reach out to and help? Do you have any in your own family that are solitary and need to be brought into your family? I don't have to bring them all in. I don't know that I can, you know. I can't take care of all the orphans, but maybe two, you know. There's ways to do this. The command is the same. Yes, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. (laughs) Be washed. But right before that, he tells us to wash ourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes and cease to do evil, to learn to do good, to seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. We're called to it. And these guys do it. I think of these leaders here. That would have been a tough day. could stay in my tent. The whole nation's gone to hell in a handbasket. Nobody's worshiping the Lord like they're supposed to. Me and my family are in our tents. But the whole world, you know, that's all they, that's all they, they could have got away with that probably. But they walked outside their tents and they went out there and they got in the way. And they stopped it. They said, no, no more. Leave them here. And they took everything that was dropped there and they made sure they were all taken care of and put them back where they were, where they were taken from. Beautiful. Verse 16, at the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Syria to help him. For again, the Edomites had come, attacked Judah, and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded the city. You can smell blood in the water, right? All these guys are all these nations around Israel. They can smell that weakness, and they're all circling. 
The Philistines also had invaded the cities in the lowlands of the south of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh uh, Ajilon, um, Gedaroth, Sokah uh, with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they dwelt there. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. That's an underlying, yeah, I'm, I, I underline that in my Bible. Why is this happening? For the Lord brought Judah low because Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. A moment of unfaithfulness is one thing, but to continually be unfaithful to the Lord is a, it's a complete, it's a backsliding. It's a, it's a decay. We have days, we have moments where we're not obeying God. But this is different. This is on purpose. Um, this is not, there's no repentance and it's continual. And so he has to do something. He steps in to stop the decline. Also, Tiglath, uh, Pilizer, <laughs> king of Assyria, came to him. And distressed him and did not assist him. Remember, he just called out the king of Assyria, please come help me. The Edomites are coming. The Philistines are coming. So he comes down. Yeah. But he doesn't assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasure from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, and from the leaders, and gave it to the king of Assyria. But he did not help him. I'll take your money, but I'm not going to help you. So they're mercenaries that just didn't merce. (laughs) You know? Hmm. I mean, it is one thing after another. It's almost instinctual, flesh, fleshly instinct for this guy. He is so far gone away from God, it's not even crossing his mind to repent or to come back to the Lord. All he can think of is the next fleshy solution, which is to call for who? The Assyrians to come help you? They're more carnal than Israel ever hoped to be, you know? to pay them money out of, out of the house of the Lord. Maybe I could get it. He's just thinking, whatever I can do to stop this bleeding of my nation. And he's going to the enemy to do it. That'll help. Oh. It gets worse. Now, in the, in the time of distress, King Ahaz became, became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. He didn't turn around. It wasn't a an awakening moment for him. Like you'd think, you know how you always pray for relatives or people that you know that they need to hit rock bottom and you kind of think they had. And so you're just waiting for the phone call or, oh boy, I could just, can't. I've been telling them about Jesus for so long. This is it. They, they've got to return to the Lord now and I'm all ready to give them a Bible and to show them the light and have this beautiful moment, you know. It doesn't always happen. Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. That is, that king Ahaz, uh, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. Syria had just defeated him. So who are these gods that defeated us? Well, maybe I need to worship them and they'll stop defeating me. Maybe if I give myself entirely to them, no more fight. I could just give give over to it. Because, this is what he says, literally, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, 
cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem and in every single city of Judah. He made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. I don't mean to put too fine a point on it. I don't think I need to. Let's shut up the houses of the Lord. Let's break in pieces all those things that, and if we just start worshiping the gods of all these other nations, and isn't that always been Israel's aim? That's the first thing God warned them. We bring you into this promised land, and I want you, God says, to take out all of these other places because I don't want these other people in your midst because they will lure you back into idolatry and to not worship me, but to worship these other gods. So I want them completely, and they didn't. And they came across, and they were ruled by judges for a while. But after that got old, what did they do? Give us a king so that we can be like every other nation. We want to be secularized. We want to be more like everybody else in the world. Terrible. Now, <laughs> I wanted to go to chapter 29 today and finish up, you know, with at least part of it, because who wants to end here, right here, right? It's like, and so Israel declined into spiritual adultery, and they all died, you know, kind of thing. Oh, positive, encouraging Calvary on Sunday morning again, you know. But I want to leave it here. I'm not going to go to 29, because it's obvious to us, and there's a remnant. And and although it's nice to read chapter 29 and see them come back and all that, and so that's, that's a good reason to come back next Sunday. We're gonna, they're going to do what's right in the sight of the Lord again. They're going to return to God, and this new king's going to open up the doors and repair everything and put everything right where it's supposed to be. That's great. But we're not always there in chapter 29, are we? Sometimes we're in chapter 28 in our lives, and we like, feel like Lot, and we feel like Noah, but be encouraged. It doesn't mean we're quiet. It doesn't mean we stop doing. It just means we are going to stand out more. It's very obvious that these people that stood up and stopped the slavery, the human trafficking that was taking place, returned everybody to their own homes and took care of the widows and the fatherless, they were showing God's heart, which the new king is going to see that when he grows up because he's 25 years old in chapter 29. That means he's a kid watching this remnant and he gets it. There's hope. Our kids are watching. The youth are watching. They can see. They can see what that road leads to and what this road leads to. They can see what makes him feel overjoyed. I better be over here. Overjoyed and brings peace and hope into their lives, and they can see what brings decay and violence into their lives. And they'll be able to make choices that way because of the remnant. So be encouraged this morning. For such a time as this, you were born. You didn't get to be in 29. Sorry. You got to be in 28. But how much more important is chapter 28 and the people that are following God? So important. So important. So be strengthened this morning and do Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this encouragement that the remnant stands up and does what's right in your eyes, regardless of what the world's doing and the wave and the flood of spiritual adultery that's taken over the land there. Um, 
we don't have to give up or hide ourselves. We can do and be what you called us to be, to be that light and salt in this world, to get our own hearts right, to be closer to you in every way, to, to build and to, and to fight like the former kings did, like the former believers did. And then in that, we will strengthen ourselves and strengthen those around us. So I pray that you bless these folks as I go this week. Strengthen them, encourage them, fill them with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.